This is Spotlight, a charity and security network podcast. A deep dive into how U.S. national security measures impact nonprofit organizations around the world. Hello and welcome to Spotlight. I'm your host, Zach Tyler. At the Charity and Security Network, we explore the intersection of nonprofit rights and national security. The question we ask on Spotlight, how do counterterrorism measures impact the operations of nonprofits? And as we know, more often than not, that impact is negative. As part of our ongoing series interviewing experts in the field of national security and nonprofit rights, I interviewed Tracy Jenner, the Director of Financial Integrity and Inclusion at the Global Center on Cooperative Security. Here's what she had to say about her work. The Global Center on Cooperative Security works to address the root causes of violent extremism. We work with civil society, government, and private sector actors to achieve lasting security by advancing inclusive human rights-based policies, partnerships, and practices, focusing on four mutually reinforcing areas, supporting communities and addressing the drivers of conflict and violence, advancing human rights and rule of law, combating illicit finance, and promoting multilateral cooperation and rights-based standards in counterterrorism. At the Global Center, I direct our work on financial integrity and inclusion, which includes advancing the design and implementation of effective and risk-based measures to combat terrorist and illicit finance that do not negatively affect civic space and financial access. Following the 9-11 terrorist attacks, George W. Bush famously said that money is the lifeblood of terrorist operations. For many that work in the field of countering terrorism finance, like Tracy, this statement is contentious. I asked her for her thoughts on the quote. The statement was true then and reflects the Bush administration's prioritization of freezing terrorist assets following the attacks on September 11th. Money remains crucial to violent extremist groups today, which require funds to plan and launch attacks, but also to support their daily operations and lead recruitment efforts. Cutting off those funds has a significant impact. Like any business or organization, if you're short on funds or if you have to invest significant time and attention in raising funds, that will divert attention and affect organizational decision-making, activities, and growth. Since Bush's statement, the nature of terrorism and terrorism financing has changed. Organizations are increasingly decentralized and the cost of attacks is declining with the use of things like vehicles and knives rather than large-scale centrally organized attacks. This means that today, the emphasis has expanded from freezing terrorist assets to including financial intelligence as one tool in the counterterrorism toolkit, tracking and monitoring suspected terrorism financing transactions, or gathering financial information on suspected terrorists as part of a criminal investigation are one of the key ways in which we understand and disrupt the internal operations of terrorist organizations, map networks of suspected terrorism associates, and gather evidence to support prosecution and adjudication of terrorism offenses. So this is all pretty straightforward and and easy to picture. You follow the money to understand the organization, and then you disrupt the funds to disrupt their operations. But there's another economic aspect to terrorism that's equally important to consider, and that is the role that illicit finance plays in creating and sustaining conditions conducive to the spread of violent extremism. According to estimates from Global Financial Integrity, developing countries lost a total of $6.6 trillion due to illicit finance between 2003 and 2012. This is more than twice their GDP growth in that time period. And the numbers are rising. In 2014 alone, illicit financial outflows topped $1.1 trillion. 
representing more than the countries took in by a foreign direct investment and official development assistance combined. So in other words, we have an ineffective system that's spinning its wheels. All of the money that's coming in is being lost due to a lack of transparency and accountability in the financial systems. And the responsibility for that lies on all sides. While the money might be lost from developing economies, more than half of it is ending up in developed ones. The need to combat illicit finance is underscored in the Sustainable Development Goals, specifically under SDG 16, focused on peaceful and inclusive societies. In order for countries to invest in their own development, they need to have the resources to launch and fund infrastructure projects, pursue service sector economy expansion, and meaningfully advance poverty alleviation and health measures. They simply cannot do that if they're losing more money via illicit financial outflows than they are generating or receiving. But addressing illicit finance is positioned under a goal related to peaceful and inclusive societies for an important reason. Illicit finance enables and perpetuates systems of inequality, corruption, and injustice. These are the same conditions that drive conflict and fuel violent extremist recruitment. So by combating illicit finance, we can better understand terrorist networks, disrupt terrorism operations, and address the systemic issues required to prevent the spread of violent extremism. That all sounds great, but in practice, efforts to combat illicit finance have had negative consequences, including their abuse to target human rights activists, constrict civic space, and creating a chilling effect on humanitarian operations. When this happens, it has the opposite effect of actually exacerbating the drivers of violent extremism and enabling terrorist operations. Although the Charity and Security Network focuses on addressing U.S. counterterrorism measures, the U.N. is also an influential entity in the world of security. So I asked Tracy to describe the U.N.'s counterterrorism efforts. The U.N. plays an important role in setting normative standards for combating terrorism. In 2006, it released its Global Counterterrorism Strategy, which includes addressing the conditions conducive to the spread of terrorism, enacting measures to prevent and counter violent extremism, and importantly, ensuring human rights and the rule of law as fundamental basis for the fight against terrorism. The Global Center produces a biannual assessment of global efforts to combat terrorism, which is issued alongside the UN's review of the Global Counterterrorism Strategy. In our forthcoming report, we argue that the UN needs to take serious its normative role on counterterrorism, deliver on its commitments to civil society, and uphold its do-no-harm principles of engagement in the field. Specifically, the global landscape calls for renewed attention on the UN's role in promoting and protecting universal human rights values in meaningfully and sustainably engaging civil society across the UN counterterrorism architecture. This requires more than ad hoc consultations with selected civil society organizations. Instead, it demands effective partnerships that allow for a diverse range of civil society actors to inform policy priorities, guide programmatic decision-making, and contribute to the UN's evaluations of its successes and failures. Further, the UN needs to be mindful of the risks of the increasing proliferation and use of soft law in counterterrorism. This was underscored in a report by the UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms While Countering Terrorism, which found that counterterrorism efforts are increasingly guided by normative standards formulated by institutions such as the Financial Action Task Force and the Global Counterterrorism Forum. Many of these institutions are member-based, resulting in norms that are produced by a select group, often without consistent and well-defined human rights inputs 
for the inclusion of civil society and international law experts. In the absence of clear international frameworks, these norms become the standing operating practices, and worryingly, they often find their way into binding hard law frameworks. The UN faces a number of formidable challenges ahead, but by prioritizing human rights and civil society inclusion, it can lead the way in driving more effective counterterrorism approaches that contribute to international peace and security. Here is what Tracy had to say as to whether the UN's counterterrorism efforts have been effective in addressing the root causes of violent extremism. I think the UN has made significant efforts to advancing structures and frameworks that do so. But to date, there's really a need to increase the ability to effectively monitor and evaluate policies and programs that are operating at the local and community level. Efforts to prevent and combat violent extremism really need to be driven by local actors and owned by those populations that are most affected by terrorism. The UN's role is to support and engage those actors and to ensure that their perspectives, priorities, and needs are reflected in its work and are elevated into normative standards that respect human rights and promote the inclusion of diverse perspectives. In the United States, overly broad definitions of material support to terrorism make it difficult for nonprofits to work in conflict zones with terrorism presence. As a result, populations in need in those regions may be excluded from aid and peacebuilding activities. I asked Tracy what the UN is doing to provide humanitarian and peacebuilding safeguards to nonprofits building peace and providing aid in regions with terrorist presence. So there are two aspects to the material support issue. The first is what constitutes material support, and the second is who is considered a terrorist. A lot of attention is paid to the former, but the two are intrinsically linked. It technically does not matter what funds, resources, or services are provided if the recipient is not considered affiliated with terrorism. So the important question is, who makes that decision and on what basis? The United Nations has failed to define terrorism. It defined terrorist acts through a 1999 convention, but that's only binding on its contracting states. Through its sanctions committee, the Security Council maintains a list of designated terrorist individuals and entities, but it's limited to those associated with Al-Qaeda, ISIS, or the Taliban in Afghanistan. Beyond that, it's left up to individual member states to define terrorism under national legislation and to articulate a process for designating individuals as terrorism associates. The lack of an international definition of terrorism has left the door open for states to establish overly expansive definitions or to apply the terrorist label in a politically expedient way. For humanitarian actors, the issue of who's considered a terrorist and by whom becomes especially tricky. Aid organizations are increasingly operating in complex situations where armed conflict, terrorism, and humanitarian crises overlap. It's important to ensure that aid is not misappropriated by terrorist actors, but it can be difficult to discern civilians from combatants. In the absence of such certainty, material support provisions essentially criminalize the provision of services, jeopardizing fundamental human humanitarian principles of neutrality and impartiality. Understanding differing legal frameworks and developing effective risk mitigation frameworks is critical, but also time-consuming and resource-intensive. This is resulting in a chilling effect on humanitarian operations, especially those led by smaller-scale organizations. The UN routinely includes language that counterterrorism and counterterrorism financing measures should be implemented in accordance with international human rights humanitarian, and refugee law. But there's little clarity about what this means in practice, 
and even less accountability as it pertains to CFT measures. In 2019, the Security Council took a step forward on this issue by including language in Resolution 2462 that urges member states to take into account the potential effect of countering the financing of terrorism measures on exclusively humanitarian activities carried out by impartial humanitarian actors. This is unique in that it considers activities that are exclusively humanitarian and done in accordance with the IHL principles. Such activities can occur in situations that do not constitute armed conflict and thus would not traditionally be governed under international humanitarian law. But questions remain about the scope of this provision, especially how the requirement of taking into account will be interpreted and applied in domestic contexts. A UN report on actions taken by member states pursuant to Resolution 2462 found that 45% of responding states lack an institutional framework to consider the effects of CFT measures on humanitarian activities, and only a few states have developed a specific response to these potential impacts. So clearly there's more to be done here, including the development of concrete guidance for member states on how to design, implement, and evaluate risk-based policies and practices that effectively counter terrorism financing while safeguarding humanitarian action. This is what Tracy had to say about how counterterrorism finance regulations impact small and local nonprofits in conflict zones. I think CFT regulations are making it more complicated for many nonprofit organizations to access and retain financial services. There are two issues at play here. The first is the administrative burdens that are placed on nonprofits as part of efforts to detect and disrupt illicit finance. While important, these measures are complex, confusing, and in some cases, purposefully arduous to dampen civic space. For smaller local organizations, these obligations can be overwhelming, particularly if they lack a dedicated legal team. If organizations cannot demonstrate compliance, they're unlikely to receive donor funding which further contributes to local actors being crowded out by larger international organizations. The second issue relates to risk, both real and perceived. Nonprofit organizations are struggling with reputational challenges stemming from their potential to be abused by criminal and terrorist actors to raise and move funds. The risk of abuse is not new, and nonprofit organizations have undertaken significant efforts to mitigate these risks but the wider landscape in which these efforts are situated is changing. In the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, regulators renewed attention on addressing financial crime, which resulted in rapid regulatory changes that placed new and intensive demands on financial institutions. According to Thomson Reuters, the financial industry has faced 50,000 new regulations since 2008 and more than 200 regulatory changes per day. Keeping pace with these changes has required an exponential upscale in compliance spending, and the financial penalties for failing to do so have also grown significantly. This contributes to an increasingly risk-averse environment in financial institutions, especially for sectors that are less profitable for banks, such as nonprofit organizations. Banks have responded by closing the accounts of nonprofits, declining to bank them as clients, or delaying transfers and requesting additional information a practice that is known as de-risking. Working on the de-risking issue for the last several years, I've come to increasingly view the problem as one of incentive. While individual bankers are moved by the human consequences of de-risking, it's not enough to alter the business practices of large institutions. Regulators have provided some additional clarity and guidance on their standards, 
but it remains all stick and no carrot. Banks still see these clients as all risk and no reward. Now, government can't compel banks to engage with nonprofit clients, but policymakers can find a way to incentivize financial institutions to do so. This could be either positive incentives, like tax breaks for service and conflict zones, or negative incentives, such as penalties from withdrawing from priority jurisdictions and sectors. Until we address the issue of incentive, I expect that nonprofits will continue to struggle to secure and retain financial services, something that particularly affects smaller and local organizations. I asked how we can build capacity and invest in small organizations so they are better supported by financial institutions. It's important for nonprofit organizations to understand what their obligations are and the purpose behind those obligations. This is difficult because it extends beyond their traditional mandate and can be complex and time-consuming. But the onus should also not be solely on nonprofit organizations. There is a need for donors, for policymakers, and for financial institutions to open that dialogue and to support nonprofit actors in figuring out what compliance obligations are required and how they are already meeting those standards and where they need to do more. This interview was recorded prior to the UN General Assembly in September 2020. I asked Tracy her thoughts on how nonprofits could best engage with the UN to address the negative impact counterterrorism measures have on humanitarian and peacebuilding activities. So the framing of this question is important because I think that there have been significant efforts undertaken to raise awareness of the problems facing humanitarian and nonprofit actors as a result of counterterrorism and counterterrorism financing efforts. But too often, this has been a one-way street where nonprofits provide input and raise concerns, but continue to lack a seat at the table or even a voice in the actual policy making. Further, dialogue often breaks down when you hit the point at which actions need to be identified and taken, and critically by determining who is responsible for carrying it forward. Nonprofit organizations need to continue the work to mobilize around and inform regulatory and policy developments. This includes educating and engaging with donors, financial institutions, policymakers, and multilateral bodies. And as mentioned, to do so effectively, nonprofit actors must first educate themselves on the objectives and practicalities of of CFT, which is no small task, but one that is arguably beyond the scope of their mandates. But too often, I see strong arguments made by nonprofit organizations that are dismissed because they misconstrue CFT obligations or fail to acknowledge instances where CFT measures are necessary and beneficial. There are several organizations and networks that are working to address this gap, and such efforts should certainly be supported and expanded. The private sector and nonprofit donors also have a role to play including to work with nonprofit organizations to understand their operating models and risk management frameworks. Open dialogue can play an important role here, particularly in finding innovative and viable solutions in the short and medium term. For its part, the UN's counterterrorism architecture must do a better job of viewing civil society as partners. While there are some areas where the UN civil society participation is noteworthy, including the UN Development Program, the Office of the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights, and the Security Council's Counterterrorism Committee Executive Directorate's Global Research Network. In general, civil society engagement and high-level discussions on counterterrorism and preventing violent extremism remains an exception or thematic consideration rather than a part of the UN culture. 
The UN will convene this month for its annual General Assembly meeting, which presents a prime opportunity to demonstrate its commitments to human rights and civic space. The format is unusual this year, given the global COVID-19 pandemic, um, but the increase in virtual engagements also affords an opportunity to engage a wider set of civil society actors from around the globe. This is an area to keep an eye on in the weeks ahead. This year's UN General Assembly is a bit unusual in that there appears to be significantly fewer side events and thematic conversations happening around the margins. This is in part due to the virtual nature of the General Assembly, um, but is an area that is potentially concerning as we consider the ability of civil society to both participate in, but also contribute to and lead conversations and inform the agenda setting at the United Nations. This is something that is worth monitoring and ensuring that we are paying attention to the ways in which the UN is building in and expanding its civil society engagement, which should extend beyond the General Assembly week to include its standard operating procedures. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Spotlight. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Tracy. Please remember to subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends and colleagues. We look forward to you tuning in next time as we continue to explore the nexus of nonprofit rights and national security.